0: Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Natasha Bove about how to prevent clinician burnout. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Dr. Natasha Bove, CEO of and physician at Northern Virginia Family Practice Associates. Welcome. Thank you. Um, and wanted to talk to you today about physician burnout, but first, uh, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and uh, and what you do.
1: Sure. Uh, I'm a family physician in Alexandria, Virginia. Uh, I run a concierge medical practice, which is a primary care office. Um, and we have been here for 30 years. Uh, and we are, we've are we been growing a lot, especially since the pandemic.
0: So let's talk about burnout. Um, how big of a problem is physician burnout right now?
1: It's a giant, huge problem it's a crisis big enough to really shut healthcare down not just physician burnout but nursing burnout healthcare provider burnout administrator burnout and this was happening before the
0: pandemic uh you know i mean we you know certainly wrote a play of articles about it uh you know obviously uh you know it's been kind of in the works for
1: for years right absolutely sure it's i mean i think being overworked is something that not 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 every profession suffers from, but but many service professions do suffer from, and uh, and healthcare is right up at the top.
0: What are some of the factors that kind of uh, have led to this problem?
1: Um, I think many factors. Uh, you know, largely, I think it's a caring field where everyone in it, whether it's an administrator or a, a clinical provider, like a nurse or a respiratory therapist or a x-ray tech or a physician everyone is in healthcare instead of doing something else because they really care about people and they and they really want to help on an individual level make a contribution and so i think one thing that leads to burnout is just that it's there's always something more to do and there's and it's very hard to set a, a clear delineation like when is it good to stop because if i stop i'm not helping somebody but like when is that okay for me and for my family <clears throat> and i think the lines are so easy to blur
0: and it, what are some of the systemic sort of factors that that play into it as well uh, just from the on you know, the healthcare uh System in general, and, and kind of you know what's sort of driving burnout on that end.
1: Um, well, probably lack of staff and uh, low numbers of people in in training that have the right licenses to do the work. Um, and then you know, for those who are well trained, if people are unhappy and they leave early, they leave the profession early, they they or they stop seeing patients or doing clinical care, then. There's there's just less of that available to go around. Um, And organizations are largely focused on getting things done. And that's really good because there's so many patients who need care. But it's 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 not good in the long term because then if our organizations are not caring for our people, then those people no longer want to be in those organizations Right. And it, it becomes a less appealing place to spend your life and career.
0: Uh, and, and obviously, you know, the last two plus years have been crazy because of the pandemic. How did that exacerbate the problem of burnout?
1: Um, well, we just did a really interesting interview with a, <clears throat> with a palliative care physician who was talking about how you know, on a normal normal day in a normal life, she would be caring for people who were at the end of their life and she would have meaningful interactions with those people and and kind of death is a part of her life. And the, the, the speed with which that was happening and the volume was just so hard to process and digest um, and the, the lack of knowledge. We didn't have something... To do for these patients for the first year of the pandemic um, and now we have preventive vaccines and we have treatment medications and so it's a very very different feeling to treat covid now than it was in the first two years
0: um, and and then obviously uh, you know you mentioned earlier people are leaving the profession um, you know that it seems like that sort of has been accelerated by the pandemic as well, just you know, because of the sort of onslaught of what they had to deal with. Um, you know, that must be difficult both for you know the people leaving the profession, but also the people who are still in the profession have to kind of pick up the slack. You know, how are how are mm-hmm. uh, you guys dealing with that?
1: Yeah, well, Jay, you probably already know this, but there were twenty four thousand doctors' offices that closed during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it did leave those offices that are still standing with a lot more people to take care of. Um, so the, yeah, so the numbers are bad. What was the second part of your question?
0: Well, I guess just sort of, you know, the, what was it, what did it mean to the people who were kind of still, you know, still working in his, in the profession? So you kind of, I think you covered that. Mm-hmm. But, um, so how can a strong practice culture uh, mitigate burnout?
1: I think the I think it starts with the, the most basic of kind of human interaction fundamentals and that we are all looking to be understood and to be seen in our work and we need to also be able to risk having challenging conversations with one another with one another <clears throat> but if we're not if we're in a state where we're so busy that we don't have time to talk to each other or if we're working with difficult problems that may not have easy or or good answers and we don't cultivate the skills on how to really speak honestly with one another including holding opposite opinions on the table at the same time then we don't really have a chance to create the kind of gel that is going to undergird a system that has to support a lot of other people. So I think if we if we just focus on being busy and getting the work done, <clears throat> seeing the patients, answering the phone calls, checking the labs, looking things up in a book, it doesn't help keep the the gel of the organization running together. And so it doesn't function as a, a unit that can really come together to, to help people feel cared for. And if people don't feel cared for, even if they're getting technically care, <clears throat> their outcomes are not as good. Mm-hmm. Their diabetes isn't as well treated. Their um, ser- post-surgical outcomes are worse. Their pain scales are higher. Their anxiety is much worse. And so we have to really come together as an organization in a way that supports compassion.
0: Absolutely, and what are some uh, some ways to build a strong practice culture that, that you've uh, seen and that you've, I assume, done in your practice?
1: We're doing something very, very <clears throat> hopeful to me right now, which is we're using some of the research that was done by um, Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy at the Harvard School of Education and it is the the work is called immunity to change Mm -hmm. and it's it's a system of understanding a project at work and understanding each person's orientation toward that project but by utilizing a structure that they have researched and created it helps us kind of take ownership about the things that we can change ourselves. Um, and so we've just begun some pilot work in the last two years, working with small groups of people within our office where we are utilizing the science of that. Um, I, I guess it's team building, it's honesty building, and it's it's really helps people move along in the, um, on, on a continuum of <clears throat> continuing to develop their brain and continuing to a, a, a develop their ability to think about problems in a complex way. Um, and and it is something that can be utilized at all levels of training.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we are not only focusing on the top three leaders in the organization, for example. We're, we're focusing on everyone slowly those who are willing uh, to to gradually implement that work and, and what it has begun to do it, so far it is I think begun to do two things. Number one, it really helps us create a flatter organization because in doing in the doing of that work we recognize the humanness in each other in a in a much more everyday and and very related way so it's easier for us to have conversations where one pushes back on another because we we trust each other more so number one we have a flatter organization as a result of that and number two what i'm beginning to realize is that instead of being an organization of doers where we are just all constantly trying to check off all the boxes get the whole list done you know clear off our inbox and go home I think everyone who's been working in that science has begun to take on the development of others and so whether that means that I'm answering the phone and there's a process that needs to be worked on and I can work with the other people that answer the phone to develop ourselves and each other so that it works better and we don't have to go to the higher up to figure it out but we can work on it ourselves because we we're trusting each other enough to have a conversation about what can work or whether that's me learning how to run a better meeting and not blaming it on anyone else that my meeting didn't go well, but really looking at what I can do to change the culture of that meeting. Um, we, We all take on a different level of responsibility about how we approach our work.
0: Are you starting to see this happen in other uh, other practices as well or is this kind of becoming widespread
1: i have not i've not known any other doctor's office to use oh. this, but i would love to share that with people i mean i think it's a it's very widely used in organizational culture so it's very widely it's it, i i don't know what widely it's well understood to be used in in the in educational um environments mm-hmm. that's how it was developed. And in business environments, there are several books written about how it can be used in in different work environments of all different types. Um, I feel that something that is not always done well in healthcare is is working on these really slow, slow to build skills within our own our own selves and our own staff. So not just like me working on my staff, but me working on myself mm-hmm. and everyone working on themselves. I feel like if, if healthcare did that, our sense of empowerment on an individual level would be so much greater that the whole organization could rise to a new level of capacity.
0: Interesting. Um, so what's, uh, what is structured support and how can that help healthcare workers?
1: Um to me, a structured support starts with creating an environment on on very small in very small groups where people learn to be honest with each other. Because support starts with just like what am I struggling with? And if, if everyone is too ashamed of not knowing something to be able to even admit that they're struggling with anything, then it's very hard to implement something that can be supportive. So, um, we've come at this a few different ways, and whenever we get it wrong, we go back and look at, okay, what went wrong there? Why isn't this working? And it, it winds up boiling down to fundamental trust um, and also fundamental skill building. Like just sitting around and all loving each other doesn't quite work if people are not really learning how to take risks in communication and being willing to to say how, you know, to say what's impacting them, what doesn't work in their work environment or what they're carrying from home. They can't quite process anything at work today because of the, the, the burden they're carrying from home is too huge. Um, so I would say trust and skill building, learning how to realize that that letting something slide under the rug doesn't ever wind up benefiting us in the long run
0: and i imagine that people just have a lot a lot of things going on at home and you know in their lives especially the last two years uh so that must you know kind of bubble into their their work lives you know i mean it can only it's only natural that you're affected by that kind of stuff so um I imagine it's just been much more of a challenge to, to sort of, you know, deal with that and do your job at the same time.
1: Yeah. You know, I think that the pandemic highlighted for many people how much we're carrying at home, but I I doubt that the pandemic itself changed the level of complexity of that so drastically. I think that what's really changed for us is our willingness to realize it. Mm-hmm that at any, at any given time, if we really know what's happening for people, more than half of the people in our organization are deeply involved in caring for other people in their lives in a, not just in a peripheral way, but in a very, very everyday, emotionally demanding, physically demanding kind of a way. And I think being able to recognize that and like, let other people just know that that's what's going on at home changes our ability to be present at work
0: mm-hmm. um, so what can leaders do uh, to help prevent burnout among their you know workers?
1: <laughs> well, I guess one thing we can do is um, try to take care of ourselves you know like we we have to kind of set set some examples about what's good care. What What is good human care? How do we care for each other? How do we find the time to do what we're telling everyone else to do? I think healthcare leaders are in no better shape than <laughs> anyone else in healthcare, you know, in terms of um, sleeping enough, exercising enough, eating the right food, um, and... I'm guilty of this completely myself. I, you know, after about 10 years in healthcare, my very loving husband very gently said, you know, how can you be a doctor, Natasha, if you're not going to the gym? Like if you never exercise. And of course he's right. How can I be talking to people about going to the gym and or exercising or walking, whatever they're doing themselves, when I'm too busy with my four kids and my own work that I'm not, Ever doing that myself, and I I think I'm still learning how to make a commitment to doing something healthy in that direction.
0: So it's kind of setting a setting a good example and, and doing you know helping yourself out, and then you can sort of help others.
1: Yeah, and encouraging people to be working on wherever they want it, need to be working on to to get what they need for help. You know, maybe that's. Um, spending less time in their traffic commute or maybe it's having a more honest conversation with their partner at home or maybe it's um, not keeping the snacks in our drawers that we all shouldn't be eating, (laughs) any any of those things, or or just turning off the TV and going to bed at a reasonable hour so we feel better and more present and more capable of being here.
0: Um, one of the issues that seems to be coming up again and again is uh, workforce retention. And, you know, we mentioned people are leaving the, prof- the profession, but also um, what can be done to encourage more young people to go into healthcare? you know, especially seeing, you know, the, the statistics about people leaving the profession. Uh, how can we kind of encourage, uh, you know, new caregivers to, uh, you know, to join the profession? <laughs>
1: Yeah, people leaving leaving healthcare is is that's where we started this conversation, right? We started with saying you know people are leaving healthcare in droves, and part of the problem is that that means that there's just fewer people around to do the work that's that's needed. Um, So, and how do we so how do we prevent people from leaving or encourage people to stay, and then how do we use use that to show younger people when they're going into the work that they can do it. Um, I think a lot of it is being able to talk to those younger people about how they think they have to work and really allowing them to create a different narrative about how they they have to work and <laughs> saying, okay, there's not only one way to go into healthcare. Um, you can go into healthcare with some guidelines and parameters that really still allow you to have some sanity and there's not only one way to do that Um, so how would that be for certain people with with um, hospital-based jobs maybe it means a fewer number of shifts or for people in public health um, Maybe, you know, I've been in public health and it's, there's so much to Im- improve and work on there. Um, a lot of it, I think, the healthiness of the organization at the organizational level really, really matters. So recognizing and being willing to step into um, conversations where the leadership is is struggling and needs needs extra support. We all have to, like, take on a level of responsibility of what we can how we can how we can cultivate communication, cultivate other people to be able to problem solve. Um, and with younger, yeah, with younger students, I think sometimes it's um, the development of business skills. Maybe people could feel more empowered if they knew how to run their own practices. but people largely coming out of medical school now, I think uh, higher than seventy percent are planning to be employed physicians. Mm -hmm. And so maybe that's fine. And maybe there's, maybe there's other freedom associated with other skill building that could help them create the way that they could live more fully in healthcare.
0: And I guess these are things that, you know, have to start changing in residencies and, in you know, nursing school and medical school. Um, as well as in the professions, just sort of to, you know, uh, that, it sounds like from you know people I've talked to that, you know, people are kind of getting a little scared off, um, you know, or, or even just leaving medical school because they've kind of see you know, all these horror stories about burned out caregivers. So, you know, I guess hopefully uh, we can start, you know, in, incorporating some of those things that you were just talking about. You know, even in the educational level, um, before the battle, uh, is that true? Because
1: I thought that last year and the year before, the record there were record numbers of medical students applying to medical school.
0: I'd heard the opposite that um, that there, you know, that people are either. I mean, I don't have any statistics to back it up, but I have anecdotally, I've talked to to nurses who have said that you know it's kind of going in the other direction. but I, I guess we'll have to see over the next couple of years uh, who comes out and where they end up. But uh, I, I mean uh, are you uh, optimistic about sort of you know the next generation of uh, of caregivers coming out and kind of you know sort of turning this around?
1: I think what what leads me what leaves me with some optimism is that there's so much more um, regular conversation about mental health and about and about creating the kind of balance that we need to create from the beginning and i think this conversation about burnout is common right now but 20 years ago when i was in school it was less common it was actually it was it was in a different phase of its own evolution because when i went to residency was the a series of 3 years where they were implementing um state by state restrictions on the number of hours that residents were allowed to work. And so in the early part of my residency, those were not implemented and in the later part they were. So that was 20 years ago. And so 20 years ago, people were thinking about exhaustion and medical mistakes that doctors make out of, because they're tr- they're trained in a punitive working environment. And that was a really, really good step in the right direction toward toward balance and sanity 20 years ago and now we're in a new conversation which is to say even though we have we have some limitations in the number of hours that we can work there's quite a lot of trauma that we're exposed to in everyday work in the medical field Mm -hmm. and a huge amount of trauma that we're exposed to in residency that we we learn to live with pretty well. I mean, I think the, the the average physician is not on a day-to-day basis going home really, really processing and processing again, this challenging thing that happened at work, but we deal with difficult things all day. But I do believe that on a, on a, on a, in a conversation which could allow for a little bit more exploration, the, um, the lack of ability to process all of that or the, and the, the absence of the kind of concomitant attention to that in residency training leaves us feeling like that's really normal or mm-hmm. that we shouldn't need to go deeper. And I, th- I think this decade we're in a different discussion where the d- we're learning about the neuropsychology of trauma and how it actually creates a different uh a different mental framework um, and and prevents deeper thought is helping us see that we need you know a different level of what we need in addition to limit limitation on hours and more sleep we need more processing honest conversations better ways of understanding what each other is going through not just doctor to doctor but Everyone in healthcare, from the person who is the security person as as people walk in the door, to the person who answers the phone, to the person who's handling the bills, everyone.
0: Well, hopefully, you know, uh, it sounds like we're we're making incremental changes in in the right direction, so that's a good thing. Um, Doctor to mm-hmm. thank you so much for joining me today. It's been great.
1: Thanks, Jay, for having me.
0: All right. That wraps up episode 54 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope to join me next time. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.